0: This is The Other Side of Midnight. It's no secret that China has been in the news. It's been in the news for balloons. It's been in the news for COVID. It's been in the news for what may or may not happen with Taiwan. But one area where maybe there hasn't been enough attention paid to the issue of China and its relationship with the United States has been Hollywood. You ever notice that in the last few years, something strange has happened in cinema? Something strange has happened with American movies. You remember the first Independence Day movie where the Americans were able to beat the aliens on their own? Well, not the second one. We needed the Chinese to do that. You remember the film The Arrival or Arrival with Amy Adams? Great film, but who's the hero in that film? It's not really Amy Adams. It's a communist Chinese general. What happened? Why is it that uh, so often, whether it's uh, science fiction, whether it's action movies, whether it's adventure films, it seems like China is portrayed in a positive light. Why is it that so often it seems like realistic scenarios that may play out in an action film so rarely seem to involve Chinese villains in cinema? Well, someone who has been thinking about those issues for a long time now is chris fenton chris fenton is a veteran hollywood executive a film producer and the author of a terrific book in which he explores some of these issues feeding the dragon chris it's great to talk with you again thanks for joining me
1: well it's fantastic to be on the show and a perfect time to do it too i I thought you were going to bring up that crazy movie where this uh a uh, spy balloon flies over the United States for a week, and we try to decide whether to shoot it down or not. That was a scary movie.
0: All right, hey, Chris, I want to pick your brain on a bunch of different things with respect to Hollywood and current events. Give folks a little bit of a sense of your background. You spent uh, a lot of time, 17 years, as president of DMG Entertainment Motion Picture Group. And what, what does that entail exactly? For those of us that haven't spent a lot of time in the movie business... And how did you come to start doing business in China?
1: Well, imagine running a studio like Warner Brothers, but instead of one here in Hollywood, which where I'm located now, um, it was in Beijing. And And the goal of that was to create the biggest blockbusters possible for the China market. Um, but do that when the Chinese domestic film industry was incapable of making best-in-class, sort of world-class type of franchise movies, So they had to rely on Hollywood's expertise and the Hollywood blockbusters that were coming out of Hollywood, say, 100 movies of those a year, and figure out how to brand integrate China into those films to make them more relevant, not only for the government to allow approval of those films to get into the market, but then more relevant for the Chinese consumer to actually get engaged with the characters, the plot And the storyline so that they could actually go out and spend the big money to go see the movies in a cinema. So that was my role was to figure out, okay, how do you take a movie like Iron Man 3 or how do you take a movie like the remake of Point Break or uh, Looper, the Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levin movie, and brand integrate China into it so that, A, we could get it past the government. For approval, and B, get the Chinese consumer excited enough to make it a top 10 movie for the year.
0: And I, I enjoyed that movie, Looper, a great deal, by the way. I, I saw it for the first time recently, and I'm a sucker for time travel films, and uh, that was uh, that was terrific. But um, why should our listeners care, people listening to the show right now, what kind of films are shown in China? How does it affect them? What difference does it make to anybody what China's doing in terms of its film market?
1: Well, number one is if you enjoyed the movie Looper, you probably didn't notice that you were succumbing to soft power propaganda from the Chinese Communist Party. Um, That movie was originally supposed to take place in France in the future. But in order to get the movie into China, the Chinese government wanted us to make the utopian world of the future, the future world 40 years um, away from the present, to take place in China, because that's where everyone wanted to live 40 years from now. It was interesting
0: that 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 uh, scene where Jeff Daniels, whose character is from the future, tells Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's in the present day, he says, "Uh, trust me, I've seen the future. You want to be you want to move and live in China.
1: Right. And if you can remember Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who didn't know anything about the future, he just thought France was a good place to go. He was saying, I want to go to France. And Jeff Daniels, Slams his fist down and says, "You want to go to China?" And what was even more interesting about that scene is it was the best testing moment in the movie when we tested it with U.S. audiences. So not only were they digesting Chinese propaganda about the future being all about China, but, they but were number two it. is they they were liking it, right? Which is really unbelievable. Now that doesn't seem particularly nefarious or or pernicious in it by itself, but when you realize. That's the way the Chinese government works, where they're essentially using every type of business that wants access to that market, every industry that wants access to that market to be a a propaganda organ for whatever their narrative is around the world. And we've seen that with whether it's Marriott or airlines that are depicting Taiwan as a separate market, um, suddenly getting in trouble for that because China, the Chinese government, does not want people recognizing Taiwan as its own independent country.
0: And so because China has such a big film market and because all the studios want access to those million or those billion people and billion potential moviegoers, it affects the product that we see here in the United States. So we see a looper, which is uh, taking place where China's this utopia instead of France. And it takes place in film after film that American audiences see.
1: That's 100 percent the case. And it's why. If you watch a Jason Bourne movie, uh, like a Bourne Identity, or you watch the latest James Bond film, you'll continuously see the old rehashes of Cold War spies based in East Berlin or in Eastern Bloc countries that don't even exist anymore, mm. rather than the true villains that may be one that are flying uh, you know, hot air balloons over the country to drop an EMP over a major metropolitan city in the U.S., or perhaps one that's going to plant a nuclear device in Taipei the next time there's a U.S. congressional delegation trip
0: there. I mentioned a few examples. I mentioned the Independence Day sequel and Arrival, and uh, I think the film uh, The Martian and Gravity are a couple of other examples. You mentioned Looper. What are a few other instances of cinema over the last 15, 20 years that people might have uh, not noticed anything at the time, but when they rewatch it with this in mind, they'll recognize is actually Chinese propaganda?
1: Well, I mean, you'll see a lot of different instances of it. I mean, for instance, when we uh, made Iron Man 3, for instance, that was all about showcasing the technological and medical marvels of China. So we actually created a character to remove the R.T., which is that device in Tony Stark's, around Tony Stark's midsection, um, by a Chinese doctor that actually perfected the science and the medicine in the final scene of the movie. If you remember, that movie is really about Tony Stark realizing that he can be the person he is without being Iron Man. So the Chinese doctor was in charge of that. There's even small movies of, say, Bait, which was a uh, a horror movie where sharks overtake a mall in Australia and China said, Hey, if you want to get this movie into China, you need to make sure that the Chinese come and save the Australians from this shark infested world. That's that is essentially killing all the Australians around this particular mall, sort of a night of the living dead. Um, You see that in all kinds of other movies, whether it's uh, the pack rim movies or the Meg movies, et cetera. It's really about creating this idea that China is going to be the savior of the future and current world. And and it plays out in real time because we just saw the latest uh, announcement that China now wants to be the savior, the white knight that ends the Ukrainian and Russian war, which, by the way, would be great if it actually happens. But they want to be anointed the ones that
0: fix that problem. As far as the films go, uh, is it the studios themselves that take it upon themselves to spin this pro-Chinese narrative? Or does the Chinese government or whoever's in charge of being the gatekeeper of films that are released in China, do they actually say to Warner Brothers, MGM, uh, or whatever the studio du jour is, do they say, look, if you want access to our marketplace, you're going to have to put a a pro-China spin on this? How does it actually work?
1: Well, one of the first warning shots was in 1997 when uh, the Seven Years in Tibet uh, and uh, several other movies were made where China was seen as a villain or right. an corner, enemy Red Corner, I remember, right? A red, red Corner, exactly. Uh, Kundun was the other one. And China immediately said, hey, well, none of those movies are getting into our market, number one. But number two is anybody involved with those films will never work In this market again and that was the shot heard around the world and ever since then they've been rather ambiguous about what they let in and what they don't and there's been a lot of blackballing of say Marvel movies over the years I mean the last big Marvel movie was in 2019 it was Avengers it made seven hundred and fifty million dollars just in that market and then for a few years after that not a single Marvel movie got in No one knew why they try to keep you off balance, uh, not knowing exactly what their protocol or what their actual directive is so that it causes you to scale what you would normally try to focus your premeditated censorship around and make it very large and widespread. No one knows exactly what is going to catch them off guard when it comes to the Chinese party. So everybody is overly cautious, and that causes all kinds of issues.
0: We're talking with Chris Fenton. He's the author of the book Feeding the Dragon. You were featured in an article that uh, Ben Smith wrote for Semaphore. The uh, the headline was Hollywood's China Dream is Back. And it talks about some of the difficult times that Hollywood has had with China of late. But then it talks about how films like uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Dungeons and Dragons and Avatar has uh, they've done incredible box office numbers in China, hundreds of millions of dollars, which in some cases for films that are this expensive to make could be the difference between being uh, just barely profitable and super profitable. What has happened now that uh, Hollywood is all of a sudden in the market for uh, cashing all this Chinese box office money in?
1: Well, what's interesting is that uh, no one knows for sure exactly what the Chinese government is thinking with this turnaround on approvals. But the thought process is they went a long time blackballing the studios and the studios started to look at other markets and started to think less about China and all of their PL assessments and what they were doing creatively. And somebody inside the Chinese government probably said, hey, we are losing our leverage because we're not dangling a carrot. So they started dangling the carrot and allowing movies in. But what's really interesting is that the movies aren't working. In fact, this latest Ant-Man movie made less in th- the three-day opening weekend than we did with Iron Man 3 in one single day back in 2013. Wow. And to date, Ant- Ma- Ant-Man's only at $23 million. It should be at least at $100 million by now. So these movies just simply aren't working, but the carrot is being dangled, which is really important in terms of the Chinese Communist Party getting that type of leverage over Hollywood that they've gotten used to.
0: What are the dangers of this sort of propaganda? What's the harm? Uh, let's say you know a private business wants to make a lot of money, and if it involves making a lot of money by uh, not making the Chinese character the bad guy in an action movie, what's the harm? Why is that a danger to American audiences and American moviegoers?
1: Well, it's a fantastic question, but it, it comes down to what they want us to believe, and what the narrative is around the world. For instance, I don't really have a big problem censoring products, censoring content to get access to the market if that censorship is just done for the market itself. For instance, in Hollywood, Hollywood censors things for Korea, for Japan, the Middle East, et cetera. But none of those countries ask for that censorship to be carried out throughout the world. What China does that is particularly pernicious and actually damaging to the free speech rights that we have as Americans is they force us to make those changes that we're making inside of China for the rest of the world to see. And that is the problem, and it's not just Hollywood that is facing this. I mean it would be one thing if Daryl Morey, uh, the the GM of the Houston Rockets back in 2019, could say on Twitter, which by the way is not in China – He could say, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, right? And he did that outside of China. China can block that from their people. That's fine. But what they wanted to do was block that from anybody else in the world seeing. And when everybody else in the world did see it, they banned the NBA for over two years in the
0: market. Wow. How does China handle a film like Top Gun, which not only doesn't have a Chinese hero, but is an unabashedly kind of pro-America, pro-patriotism, pro-military, really well-done, entertaining film? How do they handle a film like that?
1: Yeah, the way they handle it is they just don't let it in. Simply, that's that's the way it goes. But what the problem was with that film is that not only did everybody know that wasn't going to get into China – But China said, you need to remove the Japanese and Taiwanese flags off of the flight jacket of Maverick. And that was the real problem because they asked us to do it for the rest of the world, for the cut that everybody in Argentina and Germany and the United States would see. And that's where the real issue is, right? It's not like, oh, you can't show it in China, so let's just move on to the next film. They said, no, you can't show it in China. And by the way, you can't show the cut you want to show to the rest of the world and until you fix it, you're blackballed from the market for every other movie you do.
0: Wow. So they can't just say, all right, uh, we think we're we're good on this Top Gun film with the American market and these other markets. They will actually say uh, that even though this film's not being shown here, we're not going to allow any of your other films to be shown in here.
1: That's 100 percent the case. And it's why a studio might say, oh, you know what, let's make a really good movie about. Tiananmen Square in 1989 or the Hong Kong protests in 2014 or something about Taiwan or something about Tibet, you're not going to see those type of movies, even if they're not even creating the movie on a budget that doesn't even count for any sort of revenue out of China. If that movie is made, that studio is blackballed from ever getting back into that market. And that market has a lot of promise because, as we talked about they dangle that carrot sure. out there enough for everybody to realize, wow, we can't screw this up. Uh,
0: talking with Chris Fenton, he's the author of the book Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. I guess that uh, answers my next question, which is you know, if it is so important for, say, a James Bond type character or a Jason Bourne type character to be facing a realistic enemy, say a, a Chinese EMP attack or something along those lines, I was going to ask You know, you've got a lot of experience in the media. Why can't you make a movie like this? And I guess the answer is because any studio that distributes that kind of a picture would find itself uh, just without an opportunity to distribute any future films in China.
1: Well, for the New York area only and also your friends in Staten Island, I will say (laughs) that we're secretly working on a couple of those type of plots out there. But just don't tell the Chinese government about that. Your,
0: your secret is safe with us. All right. You mentioned the NBA situation. What are other sports leagues dealing with and what do they do? I'm sure uh, th- there are a number of other sports beyond the NBA uh, that would like access to those uh, potential billion fans for their sport. What do they do that deals with China at, or or what do they not do? I guess it's a better question.
1: Well, look, I think there's a huge opportunity for what I refer to as the Muhammad Ali effect by some of these athletes and the. Um, And that's essentially taking a short-term hit for a long-term gain, which is something Ali did back in the seventies. We've seen this play out with the women's tennis association. Um, They had a peer player of theirs named Peng Shui who disappeared after criticizing and saying that one of the standing committee members actually sexually harassed her over the years. She disappeared the WTA and all of its players said they would never play in that market again until she's found and until they know she's okay. And China immediately banned the WTA from playing any events or any of their players endorsing anything with Chinese partners. But what was great about that is that the Women's Tennis Association, which I had never thought about and probably many others hadn't, suddenly took on a much larger brand identity around the world. There was more consumer awareness. And they're now seeing bigger events, bigger prize money, and bigger sponsorships than they ever had. So by doing the right thing, capitalism can actually thrive.
0: Uh, It's really interesting. Talking with Chris Fenton, uh, you want to check out his book, Feeding the Dragon. You could order your copy at the website feedingthedragon.com. Chris, uh, just let me pick your brain on policy and current events with respect to China. I know you mentioned the spy balloon earlier what is your take on what happened with uh, not only our handling of the spy balloon, but the fact that the Chinese would be so brazen to send a balloon over there in in a manner that's so visible, not just to the government, but even to civilians? Uh, how do you think the whole spy balloon thing went down?
1: Well, I'm not a national security expert, but I will say two things. One is the spy balloon was one of the greatest uh, sort of stories that has occurred in the U.S.-China relationship that has really mesmerized and fascinated the large majority of the American public, which is really important in order to carry out good policy and good lawmaking when it comes to re-rating the playing field between the two countries. Um, That story couldn't go away because that balloon flew over us for a good week before it was shot down. Um, It allowed people to really go, hey, it's sort of good versus evil or it's bad versus good or we're the victim and they're preying on us. What are we going to do? And what's great about that is it leads into this bipartisan select committee in Washington, D.C. that's led by a Republican named Mike Gallagher um, out of Wisconsin. He's put together a bipartisan team of half Democrats and half Republicans to address a lot of these big challenges that we're facing with China in a very constructive way and in a way that's unified. And that is the only way we're going to be able to address the China challenge that Beijing's putting on us because they play the art of war, they play a long game, they play a game of chess, and they're simply trying to divide us in order to conquer us.
0: In terms of COVID, you know, at the very least... The most charitable view of how China handled this is that they lied to not only their own people, but the world about the severity of the covid uh, pandemic and were just incredibly dishonest actors with international health authorities and foreign governments about uh, what was to come and what was already happening. What's your take on kind of what China owes to the world over their handling of the COVID pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfect exposure of the problem, that system of government. I mean, it's a bottom up. So reporting goes from the lowest levels up through the hierarchy and eventually to the standing committee and Xi Jinping. So if you're in a totalitarian system, the last thing you want to do is report bad news to the person above you. So I look at that and I think wow, that wasn't a huge cover-up per se. It was just a lot of incompetence mm. and a lot of people being fearing being killed as the messenger. And now that we've seen this all play out, the fact that they're not giving us access to properly investigate what happened so that the whole world can prevent such a mishap from happening again is to the detriment of the long-term health and safety of the whole world. And I think the, the globe, on the whole, needs to pressure China to allow us to fully investigate the same way the FAA would investigate any sort of plane crash to make sure the same thing doesn't repeat. Um, we need to do that on something at this scale. And it's crazy that between the, you know, the, the WHO and the UN and everybody else involved, we can't simply figure out how this happened and how to prevent it from happening again.
0: It, it, we're talking with Chris Fenton, author of the book Feeding the Dragon. My son has a – he's a 14 months old. He has a, a soccer ball that someone gave him, a Team USA soccer ball. I, I'm looking at this soccer ball the other day. Of course, it says made in China. Uh, you look through everything, the clothing that we have, uh, the uh, electronic devices that we have, everything. It has that label made in China, made in China, made in China, even American flags that might be around the the house. What can consumers do if they don't want to be part of this, uh, the problem? I mean, mm-hmm. we have kind of a, a, it seems like a suicide pact going where the government keeps borrowing money from China in order to finance deficit spending, and consumers uh, keep uh, borrowing money from their credit card company in order to purchase made-in-Chinese goods. It, it really, it seems like a very, uh, a, a, a strategy that's very self-defeating in In the long term, any advice on how consumers can kind of get off that Chinese carousel?
1: Well, first of all, I would check that soccer ball and make sure it's not a tiny spy balloon, number one. (laughs) Uh, But I will say, I mean, look, I'm pragmatic about this. We've entangled ourselves since essentially 1972 when Kissinger and Nixon first went over there. And it's really complicated to untangle. I have no problem with non-national security supply chain Products and services being manufactured over there, tchotchkes and T-shirts and you name it, as long as it's done under civil, uh, you know, and, and appropriate human rights and uh, employee rights type of situations. But outside of that, I mean, COVID has really uncovered some of the major medical and healthcare care supply chain issues we have some of the resource uh, supply chain issues, the national security issues like semiconductor chips to various other components of all kinds of things that we need in times of really difficult defense, uh, you know, uh, challenges. So we need to think about that and figure out how to bring that type of supply chain issue back on our shores or to friendly shores. And we do need to continue some sort of engagement That puts America first, but also allows us to have some sort of non-Cold War relationship with that other superpower. Because like it or not, China is not going anywhere anytime during our lifetimes or the lifetimes of of your 14-month-old kid.
0: Yeah. And uh, finally, Chris, is there, in your view, I know you're a nonpartisan guy, but you've also recommended a variety of nonpartisan solutions. Is there one party that's better than the other on the Chinese issue, or are they equally bad in terms of national security, in terms of uh, currency manipulation, trade, international intellectual property theft? Does one party, you mentioned Congressman Mike Gallagher, who happens to be a Republican, is one party better at handling this than the other?
1: Well, I can tell you, as I started talking about this issue from a very nonpartisan standpoint, uh, for a long time, the only platforms that would have me on to talk about it were right-leaning platforms. That was just the bottom line. So the right side of the aisle definitely got on the case earliest. Um, I think they've been best in in regards to addressing the issues or attempting to do them. Um, but now, what's great is the left side has too. I mean, keep in mind, keep in mind, we have free speech, we have uh, middle-class manufacturing issues, we have supply chain issues. We have national defense issues. These are things that affect both parties equally, and both parties need to come together to address this challenge. And you have a 14-month-old. I have a 16-year-old who plays uh, lacrosse, and I know that when he faces a big rival team, his team gets together better than I've ever mm. seen before because they got to rise up and take that rival playing their A game. And China's going to play their A game, so we need to play ours, and we need you to. We need to unify in order to do that. Well
0: said. hope people check out the book, uh, Feeding the Dragon. Chris Fenton, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks very much.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. Have a good one.
0: Appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight.